Hello everyone and welcome to OT What's Your Focus with me, Farah Money. Today's guest is Katie O'Donnell. Katie is an advanced occupational therapist working in Southampton General Hospital. Katie specialises in hand therapy and rheumatology and is originally from Ireland, having come to the UK to study occupational therapy in Southampton. Katie's worked in London across two major trauma centres, focusing on neuro rehab for five years before moving back down south to the seaside and sidestepping into a band seven hand therapy role. Katie treats a wide range of acquired hand injuries and hand conditions and really enjoys using innovative splinting to improve patients' independence. What I really enjoyed with this chat with Katie today was the fact that actually she has offered a perspective to me where I've come with a a kind of line of thinking that actually hand therapy is really inaccessible, it's super specialist, I wouldn't even know where to start if I wanted to go down that road and actually she's made it feel a lot more accessible and more than that she's a lovely person and she's got a great great story so I really hope that you enjoy the episode and as always let me know what you think about the show. Hi Katie, thanks so much for agreeing to join me today on my podcast OT What's Your Focus? How are you doing? I'm good thank you, yeah really good thanks. Oh fantastic, so obviously I've said that we're here to talk about hand therapy today and this is an episode I've been wanting to do for a long time but it seems you hand therapists are quite hard to track down sometimes so I'm really happy that we've got you on today and I wanted to know to sort of start off how did you come to occupational therapy as a profession and when did you qualify and where? Yeah, so I kind of I kind of stumbled into it luckily for me. So I am um, I'm from Ireland originally and we have this thing called transition year. So our very short story, school system, secondary school, six years long, due three years building up to our version of our um GCSEs, um, which are called junior cert, and then you've got another three years after that. Um and the fourth year is almost like a bit of a break, it's like a bit of a reset, which is a really lovely structure. So you've got no exams. You're not doing your core subjects for our version of our A-levels, which is our leaving cert. And essentially you test out all the different subjects and you have loads of time to just go and explore your own interests and things you want to do. So you get allocated time to go volunteering or do sports or things like that. So um, I I really like people. I'm just really fascinated by people and how what makes people tick. So um, I kind of took all the opportunities I was given in that year. Um, and my school that I, I went to is is amazing. And um, it's from a, I'm from a really rural little town, but... Um, we've got links to everywhere and um, they kind of this sky is the limit really so I went off to Ghana um, in in West Africa my grand-aunt so my nan's sister is a nun out there and has been out there since she was in her early 20s so I stayed in her convent and worked in a um, centre that was near her so that did a lot of sensory integration with kids with special needs or additional learning needs it had a little school in it um, it did a lot of work with people who were suffering from leprosy or recovering from leprosy, so kind of limb loss, those sorts of things. Um, and I came back and I was like, this is interesting. So it was all these sorts of like weird and wonderful things that we were doing. I remember coming back to my mom being like, this is cool. Like, what is this? I was only 16. And then I had gone off in the same year to work with a really small Irish charity that works in Belarus, again, with um, kids with kind of special needs that um, through kind of the, the government and structural system in place, they were often put in orphanages regardless of their um, 
parents or not parents so um kind of a societal thing so we've done again lots of sensory integration with those kids lots of kind of mobility stuff um all those kind of core OT stuff so by the end of the year I was like oh, I like a bit of that I like all the sensory stuff and I had done kind of volunteering in, in my community with the elderly um and you know the girl guides and all those bits and my mom was like oh you maybe it's, it sounds a bit like OT which I had never heard of so she kind of introduced the whole area to me and then um, I got into it from there so I went to Southampton Uni um, straight after school and I graduated in 2010 so I'm kind of 10 11 years graduated now oh my goodness straight away you're straight off the bat super interesting 16 out in Ghana experiencing yeah. the world. that's pretty fantastic <laughs> yeah it was awesome really really good really interesting Oh, so was you kind of set from that point then? So your mum had mentioned it and then I'm, I'm assuming you obviously looked into it a little bit yourself and what was involved. Yeah, I kind of toyed between that and medicine and I'd applied to both. Um, and we happened to have a family friend who was doing OT in Brunel University at the time. So I had flown over at some stage and sat in a couple of her lectures. And it was, I remember it being a really interesting lecture from um, someone from the transport in London and, and talking about kind of wheelchair accessibility. And I had never really thought of that sort of thing. And actually, one of the girls I volunteered with in Belarus was a couple of years ahead of me. And she went off to Southampton and did OT. And, and it was all coming back just really interesting. So I thought, oh, I'll give that a crack and see what it's like. Oh, brilliant. And so you obviously made the right choice because you're still in there. <laughs> yeah, I think um, I kind of I had a bit of a uh, doing my junior rotations. I kind of didn't do the specialities I wanted to. But now I'm so happy. I'm one of those really annoying people that genuinely loves my job um and loves every bit of it yeah oh so. why not there's nothing better than loving your job right no it's brilliant <laughs> I really love it yeah so you're here to talk to us today about hand therapy because that's obviously your position that you hold at the moment um so maybe we could start by clarifying what hand therapy is and maybe how long you've been in this specialist area because it really is quite a specialist area right isn't it yeah it's a bit of a niche area and I um I've been really lucky with it so in my um, final year in Southampton, my big placement, my kind of 10 week placement was in Southampton Hospital um, in hand therapy, uh, doing the job I, I do now. So actually, I've ended up with my old supervisor's job. So kind of come full full circle um, to take her job, which has been really lucky. Um, and, and it's kind of niche, but we do a lot of core OT skills as well. So there's a bit of an overlap. Um, I think if I was to explain it, I would say that it's the kind of the specialism of rehabbing patients with upper limb problems so either conditions or injuries back to a level of function that they're happy with and that's quite broad um but we can see patients with all sorts of things so simple like finger fractures distal radius fractures um to lots of elective surgeries so things like trapeziectomies which are looking at kind of thumb osteoarthritis for pain relief measures um, a lot of kind of dupatrons management which is kind of finger flexion um, and release of that so we get to work really closely with surgeons so I work with some fantastic orthopedic surgeons um, and I also um, sit in with the rheumatologists in Southampton Hospital as well so I get to sit in with the early arthritis clinic in um in Southampton Hospital so I work with some amazing um rheumatology specialist um consultants and some rheumatology specialist physios and I kind of get to see all the patients that have upper limb problems but also I get to see them with my OT hat on as well so I get to do a bit of vocational rehab a bit of fatigue management that sort of thing so we kind of do do all sorts of everything um I kind of sidestepped into it and I'm really lucky to have the job that I have so I graduated 2010 
did my junior rotations in the hospital locally in, in Bournemouth. Um, and I'd always loved hand therapy. So after finishing up as my placement, I, it was just something I really got. I really like that there is often a problem presented to you. There's a whole host of really well-researched evidence that you can potentially apply. And then quite a lot of the time your patients get better and that's really satisfying. Um, and you get really well respected by the team because, you know, without it, the, the, the surgeons, without us, they're kind of, you know, they don't get the good outcomes that they need. So you get to work really closely with lots of amazing people. Um, so when I finished and I started my rotations, I wasn't, I didn't find, I didn't get an awful lot of satisfaction from kind of general um, medicine rotations, those sorts of things. I didn't feel like I was being challenged enough. Um, so I went off and did the British Association of Hand Therapists run a series of courses so um, I went and did their level one which is just an introduction to hand therapy so it's a I think it's a three-day course with an exam at the end um, and I just thought that would kind of hold me in good stead um, to try like you said and kind of get into where I wanted to do and um, I did a couple of shadowings with with some of the hand therapy in Bournemouth um, but just by the times so there was no jobs availability there was no rotations into hands so I went off to London because I was in my early 20s and and just socially and, and where I was in my life that kind of really suited me so I went off to London and ended up specializing in neuro so I worked in some of the major trauma centers there so I worked a bit in the Royal London Hospital and then I spent most of my time at King's um, Hospital so I ended up kind of specializing into neuro rehab and I worked in King's in their specialist neuro rehab center um, which is kind of a national neuro rehab center and then finished off as a band eight in London, working in kind of a new neuro rehab center running that, which was very stressful. Um, but it got me, I got really into the upper limb rehab side of, of neuro rehab. Um, and I just found that fascinating. I loved kind of looking at shoulder management of, of kind of the pain of shoulder. I looked at lots of splinting. Um, and that's kind of how I learned all the basics around splinting and had some incredible people that I worked alongside. A lot of people just demystifying splinting. I remember being a band six and being really overwhelmed with the concept of it because we hadn't really done anything at all up to that point. And actually I had a couple of brilliant sevens and eights who just demystified the whole thing. And you just kind of get your hands in and get stuck in just splinting patients that needed resting splints, those sorts of things. And um, I did some training for FES, so kind of functional electrical stimulation, which is great for kind of rehabbing stroke patients, um, people with kind of um, neuro weakness for whatever rhyme or reason. So that was kind of my area of interest. I um, ran a course uh, when I was at King's doing that as well. Um, and then we basically um, got to our stage in our lives, me and my now husband, where we wanted to leave London, kind of just be a bit more grown up, have a bit more space. Um, and so we really relocated back back to Dorset. Um, and at the time, kind of serendipitously, my my old supervisor, when I was a student, her job became available. Um, so I kind of got, got in touch with her, got in touch with my now manager um, and our head of therapies um, at Southampton Hospital and um, talked to them all and kind of saying, I haven't done hand therapy per se, you know, I haven't done these rotations, but I'm really interested in it. I have all these transferable skills. Um, I'd really love, I'd really love this job. Um, so I was really lucky enough that, that they gave it to me. And actually, I think it helps. I had done some shadowing uh, with Annette Perkis, who's our head of therapy. So when I was a student, about 10 years previously, I'd done some shadowing with her and kind of shown an interest and been involved in some of the stuff in the local area as well. So I think that probably hopefully held me in good stead. And that's where I've been now. So I've been working in hand therapy specifically for, for four years now. Oh, amazing. And you know what, that's interesting to hear you say 
about you literally ticking it on yourself really like a bit of self-direction like this is where I want to be I'm just going to get in touch I'm going to reach out see who's there see who listened to me it's really good to hear you say that you kind of hand carved your own pathway there didn't you really yeah and I think um, I must say we've got some fantastic band five jobs coming out in Southampton Hospital if anyone's interested <laughs> newly graduated um, good to know, good which, to know. which has hand therapy on, on the rotation so we have a band five with us as part of our rotation so we get someone in and train them up um but people genuinely um are usually really interested in their career and if you specialize in something you're usually quite passionate about it so like most people you like to talk about it so actually if you reach out and and try and link up with people most people are really happy to share share what they know and kind of show off what they do because it's a nice opportunity to do that so yeah I would always say kind of go for that sort of things Perfect. And I've, I've heard previously that you need to actually have 4,000 clinical hours within hand therapy before you can actually apply to be what they term, I suppose, an accredited hand therapist within that area of OT. So is that true that you can't call yourself a hand therapist until you're accredited? Or can you if you're actively kind of working towards those 4,000 hours? Um, so there's no such thing as the 4,000 hours necessarily. Um, I think that exists in the States. So they've got quite a rigorous system where they have to acclimatize to it. And the European um, kind of hand therapy accreditation, that actually has the 4,000 hours as well. But within the UK, we have um, our own professional body. So I pay kind of subscription fees to the British Association of Hand Therapy. Um, and to be an accredited hand therapist, there's only actually about 60 of them in the country. Oh, wow. um, so there's there's not a lot. We have two in Southampton, um, which we're really proud of. So um, one of my band seven colleagues and, and one of my um, band eights. Um, but the kind of the, um, you, know, you know, you can work in hand therapy and be a very experienced hand therapist and not be an accredited hand therapist. So I guess that's kind of where you come from. But the, 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 BAT, which is the British Association of, of Hand Therapy, and I'll, I'll probably shorten that to BAT because that's what we tend to call them, have a really rigorous um, qualification system, which is really useful. And I think it's relatively unusual kind of within OT that to have that kind of kind of quite rigorous structured academic type of system. So they have, um, you basically need to accrue a certain amount of points to become an accredited hand therapist. So they run courses themselves. So level one is that kind of entry level introduction to hand therapy that I had, I went on when I was a band five. Um, and then, so once you do that, or you can apply to be kind of level one accredited um, just by doing kind of um, evidencing prior learning. So kind of proving that you've been in hand therapy for a set amount of time. Um, and then you kind of progress on to level two, which um, you need six points in total. Um, so there's two points per course you go on, or you can do evidence of prior learning. So you can do a case study. Um, so you can kind of uh, rack up your points through that. And then there's a couple of ways of kind of finishing off your level three. So you can do it through master's credits. So through doing master's study, there's a um, there's two hand therapy masters that you can do. So if you do those and do certain modules on the hand therapy master's module, you can kind of go straight through to your accreditation protest, protest um, uh, status, or you can do it in another way where um, one of my colleagues did, which is where you do a large project and um, do kind of uh, a large CV, do lots of really in-depth case studies um, and kind of uh, do it through that way. So it's, it's, it's very, very rigorous and it's something that would take an awful long time, extra commitments and financial commitments on top of it. 
but you know to be one of the only very few accredited hand therapists in the country would be quite an achievement so I think um long term wise that's kind of where I'm setting myself up to be because just kind of it helps you get rid of that imposter syndrome in your head um but yeah so that's kind of the system of it yeah and that's what I'm thinking it seems I mean it's I'm glad you've cleared that up that actually the 4,000 hours isn't kind of a UK thing but it still doesn't seem you know as uh, it doesn't seem any easier just to say that you haven't got those 4,000 hours <laughs> I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing but actually I always see I've not I've not had any kind of experience myself with hand therapy but I always find I think oh if I get that for my last placement I feel it might be daunting because it seems really anatomy based very kind of you know it seems very specialist to me so I would I'd love to give it a try but you know I don't know where I'm going to end up for my final my final placement come May you never know I might end up in a clinic but I definitely think it must just be such a super interesting area of OT and to think there's only 60 I mean I'm thinking about this term like to say that you're an accredited hand therapist and obviously you were saying it, it's related to these three levels essentially I mean what is realistically the difference is it down to this level of experience how many years you've done it or is there an element of you know you do have to self-fund and pay into it to a certain extent and is it just literally if you've got the qualification you're accredited and if you don't you're not is it as simple as that or is there more involved um yeah I think I know some incredible therapists working in hand therapy so um one of my other band-aids is this whole hive of knowledge and there is nothing he doesn't know but just out of his own interest he's not you know he's not been interested in kind of pursuing the the accreditation route but no one would ever doubt that he is just this kind of super genius when when you come to hand therapy so I think it doesn't necessarily always reflect the experience that someone has if they don't have that qualification um but I think it you know it, it might stand you in in good practice to have it it's quite good if you're looking into research or if you want to branch off and do private work to have all those things behind you is quite useful but certainly you can be a band seven like myself in hand therapy and not be accredited and you can be a band eight in hand therapy and not accredited so it's not kind of directly related to your um to your job spec um but it probably would be beneficial um you know if you're looking at those kind of really senior positions oh that's good to know and i was quite interested earlier on you were speaking about i'm actually on a um on a neuro stroke placement at the moment so um, they were talking about the fez the other day about doing that with a particular person and i was thinking oh god that sounds that sounds so interesting and i i've i've actually witnessed some kind of what i would call i suppose hand exercises kind of you know this one with the, the you can't you can't see this listeners but i'm like raising my my hands above my head i suppose you're looking for that range of movement aren't you in the shoulder so really hand therapy isn't just hands is it is it the no. whole upper limb yeah absolutely and I think you know I had and for me working in neuro for years I did kind of six seven years of neuro um and you know when we're thinking about rehabbing people through function we're looking at someone with potentially a dense hemiplegic arm or kind of reduced sensation or generally reduced strength potentially you can't not address the whole arm you know you can't get people to do buttons without making sure that they can move their shoulder a decent amount they can't you can't reach for a cup and take a drink of water unless you can move your entire arm like you can't just cut yourself off at the wrist but yeah kind of within my job roles in hand therapy it's not just the hands yeah so I will see um I'll see lots of um, elbow conditions as well so we'll see lots of people with kind of complex elbow fractures radial head replacements um elbow dislocations those sorts of things we see a decent amount of things like um 
distal bicep tendon repairs, which is kind of when you're at the distal end of your bicep um, ruptures. Um, and we rehab people through that. Um, what I find really interesting, which is that kind of overlap again between neuro and hand therapy, which is often the patients I quite enjoy just given my background, um, is people with kind of brachial plexus injuries. So huge, potentially dense, um, single-sided um, weakness through from shoulder downwards and looking at that kind of recovery period for them as well. So again, you're looking at, obviously looking at the hand, but you're also looking looking at the rest and, and you know, it doesn't just stop at the shoulder. You have to address the person as well. Um, mm. and, and we're not, it's not single-sided. We're not just looking at the kind of the physical rehab of people. You have to address kind of people's emotional needs. You know, if there is other areas in their lives that often influences pain and function. So you can't just treat an injury by itself and not address the person as well. No, exactly. And I think seeing so many with stroke, it's the emotional side is the bigger side of things. It's so traumatizing for some people and they're so emotional and it's that sense of loss, you know, with not being able to potentially walk or or move that limb that's been affected. It's uh, yeah, I think that's that's probably really crucial to highlight that it isn't just hands when you are a hand therapist. It's and the I think whole it's person. Not- yeah that it's not just um proportionate to the impairment you have you know so I'll have people with kind of devastating really complex wrist fractures that I've had uh, you know people who've not regained full function who've been really limited in their movement in their hand and just where they are in their life that's actually not bothered them that much and then equally I've had someone with a little finger fracture and they've not had full range of movement to be able to make a full fist just within that finger but for them where they are in their lives and what their interests are that's been devastating with huge mood you know job financial implications so actually it's not necessarily reflective of, of, of what the severity of the injury is well and you have to address that mm, no that's really that's super interesting so you've, you've mentioned quite a few already which is great but I was going to say would you be able to tell us some of the reasons that you may see a person within your department so I'm guessing this kind of maybe your more common or standard reasons to be referred to hand therapy and then there's probably some more unusual examples so do you reckon that you might be able to give us a a kind of a little range of things yeah well so I've got a I've got a great job so I work like I said uh, I work across a couple of different clinics so um I sit with my rheumatology consultants kind of pre-covid days I would sit in the clinic um uh, in an early arthritis clinic so that's for anyone who's been diagnosed usually with a rheumatoid arthritis in the last two years and it's essentially like a one-stop shop so they'll go and see their consultant the specialist um, nurse practitioner if that patient has a problem with their upper limb or with staying at work or potentially with mood um, they will literally just walk the patient around to me in my clinic space and I will see them there and then um, and get them started on things um, I also do a clinic with our orthopedic surgeons so similar kind of kind of setup so patients have a fracture or they're post-operative from an elective procedure or um, they're post-op from a traumatic um, uh, surgical procedure they will be um, see the consultant or our kind of dressing or orthopedic nurse specialist and then they come and see see myself um, and we'll kind of see them and begin their rehab process and then my other chunk of my um, week is in kind of MSK outpatient department so things that I see really really typically and I did probably mention them is I see loads and loads and loads of distal radius fractures so fractures around the wrist area 
usually that um some of them will be plated so they have an open reduction internal fixation so they might have a um potentially a plate in there or they'll have k wires that have kept it in place um you see a lot of finger fractures through sports or accidents or horse riding because we kind of live we are next to the new forest so we get a lot of kind of horse riding related accidents um we get a lot of tendon injuries so um sharp injuries to the back or top of the hand which will cut through tendons and that's a really specific rehab protocol once they've been repaired um, so we'll see an awful lot of those um, that's kind of our really really typical stuff um, my rheumatology patients are largely patients with rheumatoid arthritis some with other inflammatory arthritis conditions which, which can present really similar to kind of rheumatoid arthritis and then I get lots of um, lots of my weird and wonderful um, presentations, which I really enjoy. I think um, they're the ones that make you really think there is no set answer to and they have to sit down and think. So I have um, a lot of patients with kind of distal weakness from, um, you know, kind of weird and wonderful conditions like Charcot-Marie Tooth or kind of like a demyelinating disease or Guillain-Barre syndrome. Um, so I get to see them kind of just long term wise within my hand therapy clinic and look at kind of innovative splinting function, how they're managing. Um, I've got a couple of patients with Parkinson's on my books. Um, I get to see some of the pediatric patients. So I work really closely with our amazing pediatric OT team. Um, so um, some of the kids, if they have any splinting needs or kind of specific upper limb needs, I'll work alongside our pediatric team to kind of we just put two heads together, really. So they'll put their pediatric head on and I'll think about my kind of hand therapy splinting head and together we'll kind of try and cope with a, a solution for the patients so the range there's hugely you're going from literally from teeny to older you know this yeah and, and anywhere in between as well absolutely yeah yeah so I think you have to it, it's really interesting because you literally can treat someone I was treating a 16 month old yesterday and equally had a um online um uh, virtual uh video call with an 84 year old man um yesterday as well so my scope and, and and conditions is is huge and wide and really interesting as a result of that oh brilliant and I love I love that you've said about the the link with the I was just thinking about that as you said it I was like I wonder if there's some sort of a comparison to make this you when you were saying about the geographical location and you have a lot of injuries from horse riding yeah <laughs> it was always um, that Yes, I used to work in London and um, most of my time was spent in Kings. I did a lot of work with the trauma team at Kings um, in kind of a neuro capacity. So I see a lot of patients with kind of brain injuries, a lot of hypoxic brain injuries and did a lot of um, a lot of gang related violence. So there was lots of stabbings, hypoxic brain injuries from that sort of things um, uh, or assault or kind of high speed um, traffic accidents from motorbikes. And I moved down south and we still obviously get some of the road traffic accidents, but there is a lot of horse riding um accidents a lot of boating accidents so you get you get a you get a big difference um comparatively to what you're getting yeah um you know and you get lots of seasonal injuries as well so you get lots of kind of tendon injuries in the summer when you've got people trying to pry apart um frozen burgers and they end up stabbing themselves in the hand by accident and oh my i always know when <laughs> cricket i always know when cricket season starts not that i know anything about cricket but i always get a really typical kind of finger fractures once um the cricket season has started so yeah they it comes in kind of waves so it's really interesting to see that no ways you can be like right this june we can expect you know such and such this month and you know november we're much more likely to have these that's super interesting 
So I was wondering if you could maybe discuss this idea with us about this sort of specialist versus generic debate. I know we kind of said a little bit at the beginning about, you know, I was thinking that hand therapy is super, super specialist and, you know, quite, an, uh, you know, anatomy based. But I'd never considered it until I read an article that detailed about OTs and how generally as a profession, OTs felt they were becoming more generic. And I know obviously there's um, roles that appear such as care coordinator roles. So your title might be a care coordinator, but you're a qualified occupational therapist. And this was partially due to the lack of specialist you know, positions that are available within the profession at the moment. So with hand therapy being so highly specialist you know how do you see it from your perspective do you think there is this it's all or nothing so you're either super specialist or you're a bit more generic or do you think actually it doesn't particularly matter in a way because I'm not sure where I sit on the fences that we you know with that concept as a student because I'm not out there and working yet and obviously I haven't started my first role but I can I can see it when I look at it that oh actually yeah I suppose there is a more specialist generic debate out there in the arena yeah it's it's almost like a double-edged sword isn't it because I think you could argue in one sense that you know we're we're really holistic as a profession so we look at all physical function you know we look at kind of um kind of mental health issues we look at all the whole wide range of things so we're really all-encompassing and and so as a result of that we're really well placed to do those kind of care coordinator roles because we're one of the only kind of I feel we're the only one of the professions that can look at it from from the whole holistic side of things the downside to it is that it can lead to to roles where you're just kind of mopping up the mess potentially and that's potentially poor job satisfaction and, and poor staff retention um I think thinking of it my kind of experience has, has been in in a hospital setting and I think that there is specialisms in there's specialists in every in every section. So I know my kind of A and E colleagues are incredibly specialist in what they do, and and my um, my colleagues that work in healthcare, the elderly, are incredibly specialist in what they do, and they have a whole host of skills, knowledge, and um, and stuff that I couldn't touch. You know, there is there is such specialty to to have, even within the hospital setting, with across all those settings, that isn't generic. And I think the difficulty with OT is that. Um, we can potentially, I think if we haven't got strong, if you've got a strong identification of your job role, um, and I, my experience again is from a hospital setting, is that you might be left to do all the other things. And I think within the MDT, we all have to kind of stand up and take some responsibility for some of the um, non-designated kind of admin jobs that need to be done, discharge paperwork and coordinating with families and, and making sure equipment's in place and, and doing some of those bits. But I don't believe that's the sole role of OT. And I think if you've got a strong identification for what OT is and you can communicate that with the rest of the, the team, they see your value so much. And actually, you can do some really lovely core OT stuff. And regardless of what setting you are, as long as everyone knows and, and you're able to explain clearly what your role is, if that makes sense. Great answer. What do you most enjoy about your role? It sounds like you love it. So can you pick one thing or is it just the whole package? What do you enjoy the most? Oh, I do. I love my job. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I probably can't pick one thing, but I'll um, I'll list a couple of things. I think where I work is fantastic. I um, There is a great amount of independence given to you and you're, you're really trusted in, in 
in my clinical skills and um, you get a lot of freedom to, to plan your day, to kind of plan your patient sessions um, and kind of to pursue your interests with that, which is fantastic and, and really rewarding and challenging as a result of that. Um, in terms of hand therapy specifically, probably my two favorite things are quite contrasting. I, I said earlier, I really like that quite a lot. There will be a case patient presents in front of me, um, I will be able to go home and read a decent, well-evidenced couple of articles that will give me a bit of guidance on, on what intervention to do. I can do those interventions over a period of time um, and most of the time my patients get better, which is really lovely, really satisfying. Um, and just given the nature of hands, you see that huge functional um, improvement for patients. You're talking about them, you know, you know, not being able to manage self-care to going back to a high functioning job or, you know, using their hands for kind of... Um, uh say industrial work those sorts of things so you you get that kind of really satisfying outcome and then in the same same thing i also i really like the unpredictability of the job i get um i get to do lots of splinting um as a sort of problem solving so i um and working with the patient where there's no right answer there's no textbook um the patient might have difficulty with holding a knife or a pen and we have to figure out how we make a splint that gets them to be able to do the things that is important to them um, and it's that kind of really pure OT stuff where it's just figuring out what what's your goals what can we do to get you there um, and I love that just open book approach and get to working really collaboratively with with patients where there's no right answer but you get to to work together with both your skill sets to to help them oh that's great it's really nice to hear that you enjoy your role so much that's really good to hear I really like yeah. that. But I mean, obviously, there's going to be challenges. So what are some of the challenges that you do encounter? I can imagine a great big one at the moment, but <laughs> maybe that one alongside some of the more um, might what might be more specific to your role, what are the challenges you can face? Yeah, I mean, everyone's had, you know, loads of challenges in the pandemic. And I probably look at it with slightly rose tinted glasses. So I went off on maternity leave in September 2019. And I came back in June 2020 so I missed that kind of first wave of the pandemic which my colleagues kind of fought through with just a ton of stress they had to cancel clinics with very little notice you know we you know patients were um it was difficult to get patients to follow up um we weren't able to get any patients in the department for a period of time um and that was really frustrating for everyone but I was lucky that I didn't have to experience that um but we had a lovely um we, we were kind of propelled forward a little bit. So IT wise, when I went off on mat leave, we had maybe three computers in our department between 20 or 30 of us. And I came back and we all had laptops and there's departmental mobile phones. And we now have, um, we've gone from paper notes to a really great online note writing system that everyone contributes to um, that um, everyone can see. We um, can do video calls and telephone calls and virtual consultations. So it's given so much more um, and it's kind of pushed us forward really quickly to, um, to, for some regards, it works much better for patients. There is a certain cohort of patients that work really well from a virtual setting. It's not for everyone. It's not for all patients. But, it, you know, going forward in the future, it'll give us a lot of opportunities from that side of view to kind of reach those patients that need to go back to work and just can't do the trek traffic, you know, hospital parking and those sorts of things. So we're definitely seeing less DNAs because we can literally see patients I've seen so many patients on the building site where they've just taken their tea break for five minutes and been able to show me where they are with their with their hands at the time um the other challenge is just generally pre-covid um out of my control um 
what I probably find frustrating is um, a lot of my rheumatoid arthritis patients, um, them getting on the right treatment and getting their symptoms under control is a slow process. Um, often patients uh, can take a little bit of time to get diagnosed. Um, there might be potentially a delay from GP referring into rheumatology service. Um, and there's a really amazing um, upper limb rehab program that was um, really well evidenced by primarily OTs at Southampton Hospital, uh, Southampton um, University and Oxford University. That's really well evidenced in terms of long-term kind of range of movement and stuff for patients with RA, but you you're not really supposed to do it until patient symptoms are well controlled and it can take months and months and months before the inflammation comes down in their joints and before you can start to do some treatment that um that will make a huge huge difference of things you're kind of just just treating the symptoms and kind of helping them get by until they get on the right medicine um and the right symptom controls so you're kind of at that balancing act and and just at the mercy of the disease really and that can be frustrating yeah. And also, I suppose you, there's nothing you can do about that. There's no, there's no fast track, is there? You've got to ride oh. that out. That must be frustrating. Yeah, and kind of patience. Yeah, and and inherently, they are some of the most patient patients ever. They've just learned that that there's no, there is no fast track. It's just you need to try a medication for a set amount of time, and then you increase it slowly, and you need to check bloods and make sure your your body doesn't react adversely to it. And it's just it's just par for the course with that disease. Um, but yeah, so it's a it's a slow burn of a disease to treat sometimes but once you get them on the meds and you see the difference there's so much you can do you know I've had patients go from having kind of no range of movement in their hands being stuck in a really fixed kind of flexion deformity to once their medication's well under control and then you can put all your therapy in to you know full range of movement back to uh, repairing records and cutting steak and you can see the big difference that you can make in there so yeah Oh, that's amazing. And I suppose that must mean, realistically, that you end up with people on your caseload for a really long, long time, or do you discharge and they get re-entered back in? Yeah, so we, um, again, I think part of, of Southampton Hospital and, and plenty of our approach to things, there's no set amount of treatment sessions so we haven't got like you've got six sessions and then I have to discharge you, so it's very patient dependent. Um, so it's just dependent on their needs, really. Um, uh, so we'll treat what we need to see. Uh, with my rheumatology patients, that sort of thing, there's a great, um, uh, they can re-refer themselves back in, essentially. There's a rheumatology helpline. So I might say, look, we'll do this and this. Let's wait till you get things under control. Then I'll either call them or I'll just say, give the, give the helpline a call and we'll get you booked in when, when you're ready to, to take on something else as well. Oh, brilliant. So if you had to explain your role, so... I'm a hand therapist and somebody who didn't have a clue, how would you explain it in a few sentences what a hand therapist actually is? Um, so I guess I'd, something like supporting patients with hand conditions and hand injuries um, with their recovery and, and maximising their functional independence through education, exercise and splinting. Perfect, perfect. So you've got somebody like myself, I've, I've not had a hand therapy placement or rotation. And to be honest, I've not even seen any, where I live anyway, any kind of job opportunities for the area either. What would be maybe a good starting point for somebody who might be wanting to work within this area specifically, but maybe doesn't know where to start, they're either just about to qualify, or even they're just about to start their training, and they think actually, that's what I would love to do. Is there... Um, 
maybe another area of clinical practice or you know something else that can help lead the way into hand therapy or is there more of an obvious route you can go down I know you've given loads of advice already but you know just if you were thinking about wanting to do that what would be a good process to start I wouldn't let working in a different area or not having the experience deter you I think um there's so many opportunities to gain experience that are really useful. Lots of hospitals have hand therapy as part of their band five rotations. I know we do. Um, so there's always opportunities if that's something that you're interested in, you're at that kind of junior level to look out for band five rotations and express your interest in it. I think if you're a student or anyone really, um, try and find opportunities to shadow. I'll often have students in different areas just spend a half a day with me so they can kind of shadow and, and see what we do. Um, so kind of feel free to do that. I think there's always the opportunity to sidestep like I did. Um, and depending on what your your area of work is like as well, you, you know, you might have opportunities that isn't kind of straightforward, but if you ask and um, show your interest, say, you know, you might be accommodated. I know kind of within our MSK department, we had a band six physiotherapist um, who worked in neuro and specialized in neuro, but was really interested in MSK. She came and used to spend a half a day with us um, every week for a long period of time. And then she actually um, applied and got a band six MSK job with it. So there's always opportunities to kind of gain your experience, even if it's not a straightforward route. Um, shadow people, even if you're working in that area. If you're up on the wards, um, try and learn the basics of splinting. Um, you know, even a simple resting splint, just to get your hands on material, get used to what it's like to cut it, to mold it, um, how that feels and gives and, and what it's like to actually put it on a real life patient. There is um, quite often, it might be appropriate to be doing a resting splint with patients on the ward if you're in a medicine type role um, and you can ask to shadow an OT to do that and then potentially, you know, run with it. We run training sessions twice a year for, for all of our OT colleagues, just so they can feel like they've got those kind of core splinting skills and can do that work on the wards um, there's lots of regional opportunities so there's you could do things like joining bat um, which is a kind of subscription once a year you don't have to be a hand therapist specifically but you can join it and kind of try and make the most of all of the um, stuff that they do so we had a series of free webinars um, all this year and they're still available online so you can do that um, and then we have a regional within kind of Dorset and Wessex, or Wessex, which is Dorset and Hampshire, we have a regional hand therapy network where we run um, uh, kind of talks um, every quarter or so. Um, we run um, teaching sessions with our surgical colleagues, um, myself and some of my surgical colleagues and one of my hand therapists run a Southampton hand course, which is a fairly low cost course. So I used to go on that when I was a student and newly qualified again, just to show my interest and kind of um, keep myself roughly up to date with what's going on. So there's lots of things that you can, you can be involved in without directly being in hand therapy and kind of to, to wait till you get your opportunity to kind of get a role in there. Yeah, it is really good fun. Um, and actually I think um, it can be seen as really overwhelming, but it's 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 actually not that hard. It's a lot of the the hard bit is the justification up until the point of where you decide what you're splinting and how you're splinting it. The making of the splint bit is actually usually relatively straightforward, um, but just getting your hands on it, just that practical bit, is is really important. Whether you can get the opportunities to do that. Mm, definitely. So I always end my show by asking all my guests if they could recommend either a book, a film, article, or website, or really any other media that you think is currently worth knowing about or for them to catch up on and maybe elaborate a little bit as to why yeah um oh, there's so much so I was trying to think really hard to to be a bit um 
clear. But what I've watched in the last kind of two weeks and properly binged watch um, is It's a Sin on Channel 4. Yeah. Um, and I've just, I've sobbed my way through it. Um, and I'm sure most people have watched it, but it's um, kind of set over the late 80s, early 90s pre the kind of dual multimodality treatment for um for AIDS and for HIV and it's just looking at a um a group of largely um gay men and their friends um kind of riding through that pandemic um and kind of just how heartbreaking it is that they're we're ostracized from society there is no medical treatment and um kind of medical professions not not taking that on board and, and kind of the slow uptake um in terms of health education and prevention management measures and, and that sort of things um I, I really enjoyed it it just it's very much about four friends it's not done with a um kind of a cis hetero hat on these patients at least these people aren't um there's no kind of grief and mongering or hunting and these are just really people that are fantastic and humorous and imperfect and just happen to be living in a really tragic time so it was really interesting and I think it's quite pertinent to think about things in the time of a pandemic where it can affect largely those that are ostracized from society or potentially on the outskirts of society um, and how those can be the ones that are most affected um, while there is really effective treatment for AIDS and, and HIV now that's still it's still relevant to think about I think oh absolutely and do you know what that's been on my list now for about oh, two weeks amazing. I haven't got around to it so you've just given me another nudge I think I'm gonna I'm gonna give the first episode how many episodes are there do you know six six, six. that's all they're going to do so it's um uh, written by um, an amazing person he said that's that's it he's not going to expand anymore or go into it just runs runs from the course of time before they kind of um, looked at the multimodality treatment for AIDS so kind of in that that precursor to 1994 so it's it's really interesting um, mm, and the only other thing I would want everyone to read um, which I end up quoting an awful lot when I do the preceptorship teaching here in Southampton is um, Atawal Gawanda's Being Mortal I don't know if anyone's come across him so he is is a um, American physician. He works in kind of internal medicine, but he's this incredible author and he speaks about um, just how we're doing healthcare and how to look at things. And actually, you know, he does an interesting thing about if we, if we are we really taking this, doing it the right way and how we have those important conversations about giving people the opportunity to choose when they want to die and what is quality of life and actually having those conversations and it being an open topic and we can touch base on that those um, markers change really regularly so actually you know for someone in their 30s what their quality of life what their kind of benchmark is for what they're happy to stay alive will might be quite different from someone in their in their 80s and actually might not be what you think it is and he said he went back and had the conversation with his father after talking through the whole book and his father was also a physician and, and quite practical and he thought his dad would have a very low ceiling of care and kind of say you know with any physical impairments he was he'd be happy not to not to kind of reach out for further treatment and actually his dad said if I can still have an ice cream and I can still watch the baseball then I still want to keep going and he thought actually I didn't know that and I wouldn't have known that unless I had the conversations with patients I think that's something important to think about as well oh that's great I'll definitely put the link for that on there and I'll catch up with that one myself as well that's two goodies thanks for those very welcome <laughs> and thank you so much for talking to us today I'm sure that people are going to really appreciate this um episode especially if it's an area that maybe they thought wasn't accessible I think you've actually made it seem a lot more accessible than uh, 
definitely what I was thinking it could be. So yeah, thank you so much for that. No worries, thank you. I really enjoyed catching up with Katie and the way that Katie explained hand therapy not only made it feel more accessible, but it made it even more exciting and interesting as an area within occupational therapy than I already thought it was because the even just some of the conditions I'm thinking I'm going to have to go away and Google those because I have no clue. But that makes it interesting because it's just showing how much there is to learn and the fact that it's not just a one entry, one line in, you know, you can only access it by this means. I think there were some really useful hints and tips and ways that actually you can go down a more non-traditional route and just putting yourself out there and getting in touch with a local department and saying you know I might not have all the skills but I'm so keen to learn so yeah if hand therapy is your thing I'm hoping that you're feeling a little inspired after that or you know even if you are a hand therapist yourself you can probably see how great Katie is the, the fact of the geographical location and the um, relationship to the injury and the season, that was something I'd never even, you know, thought about or considered before. So, yeah, it's all interesting stuff. And the recommendation, absolutely spot on recommendation. I'm, I'm really looking forward to catching up with It's a Sin myself. So I will put all of the details on the show notes so that you can catch up with those in your own time. And... Katie is on Twitter, so I'll leave her details on there too if you wanted to connect. And yeah, look out for those band five roles. They are out there. There is hope. Thank goodness. So take care of yourselves. Have a great couple of weeks. And I will catch up with you all very, very soon. <laughs>